I suppose there are those occasional people who would consider themselves God's gift to the church. The church is really lucky to have me. But honestly, I don't really meet those people very often. Most people struggle at the other end of the conversation. And they wonder, how could God possibly use me? If you knew me, if you knew my story, if you knew my baggage, how could God possibly use me to change the world? Well, wherever you land on that, I invite you to pay special attention to the story this morning. Because it's a reminder that God has always changed the world through the most ordinary people. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 1. Continuing our study of the book of Acts. Again, that reminder of John Stott's title for the book of Acts that I mentioned last week. It's the ongoing words and works of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Our story this morning reminds us that God launched this movement through these apostles who are the focus of the story we study this morning. So we pick it up in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John, James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew, Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So last week's story ended with the apostles witnessing this great moment in history called the Ascension, where Jesus returns to the glory at the right hand of the Father with a promise that he's coming back, which creates a unique period in history between the fulfillment of the promise and the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. There's only been certain generations in the history of the world, which includes us, who have been given the assignment to tell the world God kept his promise and he's made a way of salvation. There is a sense of urgency because Jesus is coming back. So we have a mission, we have an assignment that we're supposed to accomplish. So they hear this and they come back to Jerusalem. The Mount of Olivet is just right across east of Jerusalem. The reference, a Sabbath day's journey, is simply a uh, first century way of explaining distance. So this would be about three quarters of a mile. It's referencing what was legal under the law to travel on the Sabbath day. But this isn't the Sabbath, 43 days after the uh, crucifixion, 40 days after the resurrection, this would have been a Thursday. 
They enter Jerusalem from the language of the text. It seems very likely like they settled in the same upper room where they were with Jesus to celebrate Passover the night uh, that he was to be betrayed and arrested. It's probably the same upper room where they were when Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection. So this room would have been filled with a lot of memories and a lot of teaching. So then uh, Luke names the apostles, which we'll talk about in just a moment. These are the same 11. There were 12 minus Judas apostles that are named in all four of the Gospels. Gets a little confusing because it was common in the first century that people had two, even three names. Sometimes different names are used, but there's no question. This is the same 11 apostles. He identifies Mary, the mother of Jesus, the women who have been following Jesus that are mentioned in the Gospels, and Jesus' literal brothers, so Mary's other sons. What Luke tells us is two things. They were of one mind. This is a really important issue for Luke. He uses the Greek word ten times in the book of Acts, that is only used one other time in the New Testament. Translated one mind, literally the same mind. He also tells us they were continually devoted to one another in prayer. This is also a very important theme for Luke. He mentions their devotion to prayer 30 times in the book of Acts. So it's very interesting then to stop and think about this paragraph. This part of chapter 1 is all about the people. For example, why would Luke take the time to list the remaining 11 apostles? They're listed in all four Gospels, including Luke's Gospel. We know who they are. There are so many details in the book of Acts that are missing, that we wish were there. Why take up space going back over a list we're already familiar with? And the answer is because people matter. That's the focus of this text. It's about people and the people Jesus called to change the world. So let's think about these people for a moment. The first one that's mentioned is Peter. Loud, noisy, impulsive Peter. How would you like to have Peter on your team at work? Peter was always stirring the pot, always up to something. You can just kind of imagine the dynamics. Next he lists James and John. Mark identifies them as those who were called the sons of thunder. Oh, by the way, there's a couple new people that will be joining your life group. Oh, wonderful. What are their names? I'm not sure. They're called the Sons of Thunder. 
Oh, this should be wonderful. (laughs) He lists Matthew. I cannot imagine a worse choice than a tax collector to start a movement to reach the Jewish people. A tax collector betrayed his own people by working for the Roman government in order to squeeze taxes out of his own people. And the more extra taxes he squeezed, he kept for himself. Tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, think how many times in the Gospels you hear the description, sinners and tax collectors. They were so low, they had their own special category. There's sinners, and then there's tax collectors. I have an idea. Let's choose a tax collector to be on the team to reach the Jewish people. He names Simon the Zealot. The Zealot wasn't his name. It was his label. A Zealot was at the far end of the most militant of the Jewish people who hated the Romans. We would today call him a terrorist. They typically hid in the hills, swept into the cities, killed some Romans, and fled back up into the hills. By today's language, if you looked at Matthew and Simon the Zealot, you couldn't imagine more far left and far right. I have an idea. Let's put them on the same team to change the world. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the women. We just read over that. We don't think much about it. But if you were starting a movement to change the world in a first century Jewish culture, you would not include women. You wouldn't. And then Jesus' brothers, technically half-brothers. We know from the Gospel of Luke, his brothers thought he was delusional. And now they're on the team to change the world. But there was something distinctive about this strange gathering of people with lots of baggage. They all came together with the same mind. Jesus had presented them such a compelling vision to give their lives to change the world. They were willing to set aside personal preferences and differences to come together for the common cause to change the world. How do we move beyond all the divisions and all the anger and the hatred? It's never going to happen by trying to somehow put out fires and make everybody happy. It happens when there is a vision that is so compelling. People are willing to lay aside their differences and their personal preferences to give their lives to something that will matter Forever. Show me a church that's defined by conflict. I'll show you a church that has no compelling vision. Honestly, 
Churches have a reputation for arguing over the dumbest things. That simply reveals there's no real compelling vision to give their lives to. The second thing was they were continually devoted to prayer. They stuck to praying. Why is that? I don't think it's because they were so spiritual. They didn't end the meeting with Philip saying, you know, Andrew, maybe lead us in a word of prayer here. I don't think that's what it was at all. I think they were utterly terrified. I think they had a legitimate reason to fear for their lives. Stop and think about this. Especially over the last six months, there's been a movement to capture and put to death these people. They had legitimate reason to be terrified. 43 days prior to this, they watched as their leader was tortured and executed on a cross. They had every reason to believe they were coming for them. They were terrified. They were overwhelmed. They were excited. Jesus had just told them to wait. Something's going to happen that's going to bring you explosive power to give you what you need to change the world. They were excited. They were overwhelmed. They were challenged. They were terrified. They didn't know what else to do but to fall on their faces and pray. This mission was both so exciting and so terrifying. It brought them together and it brought them to their knees. I want you to stop and think about all the emotion that would have been in that room as these people realized it was highly likely they would die for this cause. And I want you to compare that to the attitude of the American church. We're not like that at all. We're upset if there's no coffee or the air conditioning isn't working. We have no real sense of what these people were going through to be obedient to the call to change the world. They were a strange mix of people with lots of baggage, but compelled by a mission that would matter forever. Verse 15, at this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons were there together. And said, brethren, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness. 
And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their language, that field was called Hakaldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. So Peter emerges as the leader and identifies that it's necessary to replace Judas, who became the betrayer. Luke identifies about 120 people. Now, some scholars ascribe a lot of meaning to that number. If that was true, I think Luke would identify there were 120 people. But that isn't what he says. About 120. As a historian, he's just trying to be accurate. That's as close as he can come. It's about 120 people. And Judas must be replaced. Now, a couple significant things to understand here. These apostles were unique. This isn't some sort of an office that is meant to prevail in the church. You read the Gospels and the book of Acts. This was a unique calling for 12 individuals. When these 12 would die, there would be no attempt to replace them. They had a unique uh, assignment in history. What you have here is not just that Judas died. All of them will die and will not be replaced. It's that he betrayed, he defected. The number 12 has to do with the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. It's indicative of a reorganizing, restructuring of Israel under this new king. There's a lot of theology there that we're not going to go into, but there was a very specific reason for 12. So now there's 11 and Judas must be replaced. Peter identifies that Judas was among them. They thought he was one of them. He wasn't. And so uh, in the middle of his speech that's recorded, then you'll notice in verses 18 and 19, your translation should have parentheses. What that's indicating is this is an interruption in Peter's speech for Luke to make an editorial comment about something Theophilus needs to know. So that's verses 18 and 19. You read Matthew 27. Matthew records the death of Judas and the details. Luke also records it here. They have two different perspectives for two different reasons. The details differ, but they're certainly not contradictory. So, for example, when you read in Matthew's gospel, we are told that Judas went out and he hung himself. Matthew's got a certain perspective for recording that. You read what Luke says here. He's writing to Theophilus. Theophilus is aware of this field of blood. And Luke is trying to explain why that is. If Judas went out to this area that's just southeast of Jerusalem and hung himself, more than likely he hung himself from a tree. Once he was dead, who's going to go retrieve him? Who's going to go retrieve the betrayer? 
Answer, probably nobody. So in time, the branch broke, the rope broke, the knot came loose. Something happened. He dropped to the rocks below because his body was uh, distended from being dead. He bursts open and splats on the rock. The reason Luke uses such graphic language is he's wanting Theophilus to understand it was a horrible end to a wicked man. And this is why the field is called. So even that, he gives them the Aramaic, the Hebrew word, akodama, but says, by the way, you're Greek, you don't know what that means. It means the field of blood. So that's what's happening in verses 18 and 19. Then we pick up Peter's speech. He identifies two psalms, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, applies them to Judas and concludes Judas must be replaced. Verse 21, therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must be a witness with us of the resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and lot, the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the 11 apostles. So the two qualifications is, number one, it had to be someone that's been following Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry. So the reference to the baptism of John the Baptist is the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus. In other words, someone who's been with us all the way through. Second, it has to be someone who has both witnessed the resurrected Christ and is willing to be witness that he has seen the resurrected Christ. Out of that, they choose two candidates. And then they turn it over to Jesus through the casting of lots. Now, this is a strange thing to us. You see it occurring in the Old Testament from time to time. You saw it with the Roman soldiers casting lots for the clothing of Jesus when he was crucified. Nobody's quite sure uh, what was done. Most people think they were some sort of objects, a bone, a rock, something. Some sort of markings put in a container and somehow it indicated a direction when they poured it out, rolled it out. It is interesting that this is the last time it's ever seen in the New Testament. So essentially, once the Holy Spirit comes, that way of discerning the will of God has come to an end, and the Spirit then indwells us to lead us forward. But in this case, then Jesus makes his choice, and Matthias is added to the 11 to once again make 12. This now sets the stage for one of the most amazing moments in human history. Probably the greatest moment of the Christian church, which we'll talk about next week. 
But as we wrap this up this morning, I want to go back to the focus of this particular text. And the focus is on people. So Jesus gathers quite an unusual gathering of people. Ordinary people with lots of issues and baggage in order to change the world. So how did they do? 2,000 years later, the church has exploded around the world. It's interesting to think about, but every single one of us who has trusted Jesus as Savior could root your story all the way back to one of those people in the upper room that day. But church history is all about faceless, nameless, ordinary people. None of us know the people in our line all the way back to the upper room. To us, they're nameless, they're faceless. We don't know who they are. But Jesus knows. Jesus knows. He's always called the most ordinary, everyday, lots of baggage people to change the world. Even thinking about the people in that upper room that day. It's worth noting this is the last time in the New Testament, Acts chapter 1, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, is ever mentioned. She wasn't a first century celebrity. She disappeared into obscurity. You say, well, what about the apostles? What about the apostles? Other than Peter, James, and John, not a one of the other nine are ever mentioned again in the New Testament. Not once. They had their assignment. They all followed Jesus. They took the gospel to different places. They all ultimately were persecuted and put to death for the cause of Christ. Somebody else picked up the baton, nameless, faceless people. We don't know, but Jesus knows. That's even true within a local church. We walk through these doors. Most people sitting here this morning, you could not name. The people who have sacrificed so much to make it possible for us to have what we have. That's not your fault. It's not a criticism. How would you know? But that is always how the story goes. To us, they're pretty much nameless, faceless people. We don't know. But Jesus knows. Every generation has their challenge to face into what it means to be the church. With faith and courage to rise up and to be faithful and to advance the mission. This is 2021. This is our generation. This is our challenge. 
This past week, I was sitting around with some pastor buddies of mine from different parts of the state. And we were talking about something that pastors, church leaders are talking a lot about these days. And that's, I wonder who's coming back. What a weird year. We were shut down. Then we're restricted. I think all of us are wondering who's coming back. We all have no doubt that there's certain people they've moved on. They've lost interest in Jesus. They're more interested in the things of the world. They've moved on. But then there's the rest of us. What about the rest of us? First of all, I want to say, I know there's people who have legitimate health issues. And they're staying home. They need to stay home. You know who you are. You need to do whatever you need to do in order to protect your health. I'm not talking about you. But there are a lot of other people staying home. That's not what it is for you. You're going to Walmart. You're going to Menards. You're going out to eat. You're going to the gym. You're going to the grocery store. That's not what it is. In a weird year like this, it's easy to shift from being a follower of Jesus to becoming a consumer. It's very easy to stay at home, throw on your sweatpants, get a cup of coffee, and church has become a TV show. It takes an hour, you move on with your day. Over the years, whenever anybody has asked me, what is it that makes Lincoln Berean so special? I have always said the same thing. It's her people. It's her people, amazing people. I love this place and I love the people. And this is a new challenge. And I am saying we can do better. We can do better. I understand staying home is convenient. I do understand that. Get up, throw on sweatpants, get a cup of coffee. That is really convenient. That's what I hear more than anything else. Well, it's just so convenient. But since when has convenience been what we're called to as the church? That's not who we are. It's about understanding we've been given a mission to change the world. To take the light into the darkness. I want you to think about this idea was just so convenient. And then I want us to think about those 120 people in that upper room. They were terrified. They were overwhelmed. They had a legitimate reason to fear for their lives. Most of them would end up persecuted, many put to death for the cause of Christ. Our roots go back to those people. There are many of our brothers and sisters in the world today whose situation is very much the same. 
at great risk to their personal lives, at great risk to persecution, they gather as the church. And they love one another, and they, and they support one another, and they encourage one another, and with great faith and courage, they advance the kingdom. Are we as the American church really going to say to them, you're asking too much. You're asking too much to inconvenience me. To put on clothes, to leave the house, and to gather with the saints. To worship as the church. Is that really too much to ask? How are we going to break out of this culture of fear and isolation? Isn't it our job as the church to lead the way? We carry the light into the darkness. I've heard so many people say this is the new normal. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe the next 10 years will be 10 years of an irrational fear and isolation. But it better not be for the church. We have a job to do. And there's an urgency. Jesus is coming back. And there's people that do not know the truth. So I am calling us. I'm challenging us. Back to the mission of what God has called us to. Maybe while we're under these restrictions, we'll have to fill up some overflow rooms. Fine. We'll do that. We'll still be together. We can encourage one another. We can challenge one another. We can love one another. We can serve one another. We can worship together. We can break out of this isolation. And we can be the church. And we can stage ourselves for whatever it is that God calls us to do in 2021. That's who we are. That's who we have been. That's who we are. And I'm calling us to be that again. So yes, I'm inviting all of us with faith, with courage, empowered by the Spirit of God. Come on, why don't you join us as we dare to be the church? Our Father, we're thankful that you have called us to be the church, to be the messengers of the life changing message of Jesus to be the light in this darkness. God, this has always been an amazing place full of faithful people. And we want to be that again for this time. Lord, may that be true of us in Jesus' name. Amen.